Well, good news. This morning we start a new sermon series. So we did seven or eight months going through the Gospel of Mark, and we finished last week with his ending. And, uh, and so, of course, it ended with the resurrection. And, and so what I'm going to do now, oh, by the way, the, the, the blue handout sheet, I, I will note, I don't know why verses 6 to 11 are underlined in that. I think it, the, the computer did something to it when it went from my computer to the admin's computer that made it, and so some of the spacing is off as well. So anyways, there's no significance in that. We're going to cover all 11 verses, but, but this new series really is following after the resurrection. So we told the story of Jesus and, and what, what happened with what he said and did, and so the new series is called so what happens now? Like, right? So after, given that now Jesus is raised from the dead, what is God's plan going forward? What is God's plan to, to, um, to bring about the kingdom of God? And how do we, as followers of Jesus, fit into it? So it's going to get a little more practical, a little more what do we do with this? And you've got to think about it. At the end of Mark there were probably 120 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem with him. It, it talks about the 500. That 500 might have been the number if you add in those who are still up in Galilee in the north. So there were at most 500 or so who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. 120 were, were a part of the initial thing in Jerusalem. And it went from that to over 2 billion people today who would fall under the name of categorized as Christians, right? How do you get from, from 120 to, to 2 billion plus? And what's God's plan? And certainly after the resurrection, the, the crucifixion was public, right? Everyone in the whole city would have looked and seen Jesus uh, gasping for breath and dying on a cross and stripped and shamed and mocked. Only a few saw him alive, saw the resurrection. Jesus did not choose to, to, um, to make the whole resurrection public. Only his followers would have seen that. So it would have seemed pretty dark. Like, what a challenge to, to see go from there. And in May of 1940, things were not looking good for Winston Churchill. It would have looked very dark in England. Um, he had been appointed on May 10th as the new prime minister, mainly because the Germans were sweeping through the rest of the, the European continent. They, they, uh, first, the, they'd taken over Poland, and then they, they went east, and Belgium and Holland both surrendered. And France, which before the war had had the largest army, France and Britain were allied against the Germans, that French army just melted. They had lost the will to fight. And so you would have thought before the war, France would have been the strongest. Turned out they, they had very little. And, and the, the British had their main army on the continent with the French. And... And their army was surrounded. So I, on the screen, I got a map, and maybe it's a little hard to tell. 
but the blue would have been all the territory that the, the Nazi Germany controlled. And so you got the red is England, and then, of course, over Russia was sort of an ally. They also would have ventured. But even at the beginning, Russia was also on the side of Germany as well. So it would have been just Britain as the French army folded. And the British army were trapped in the northern part of France. And they were about to be wiped out. And that's when Winston Churchill was designated prime minister. And everyone expected him. They wanted him to sue Hitler for peace. And, you know, well, don't, don't destroy our army and we'll, we'll let you have the continent, everything in blue. We'll let you have that. Just let us save our army. Churchill chose a different route. Instead, he called upon everyone with a boat who could make it across the channel to, to go to Dunkirk where the, the, the troops are, were trapped. And he made this mass evacuation and they, they evacuated thousands and thousands of their troops, getting them back to England before the, the Nazis could close in on them. And then again, once the, the troops were saved, they thought, okay, good, our troops are saved, but there's no way, you know, we don't want Hitler to invade Britain. Let's just, let's just make a peace plan. And so Churchill stepped up to the podium, everyone thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sue for peace. Instead, he said this. He says, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it, it, is, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, and with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all the terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. And Churchill somehow rallied a nation. And four years later, they crossed the channel with an army combined with the Americans on D-Day, and they began to retake the continent back, and within a year, Germany surrendered to them. It looked dark, but they decided they weren't going to hand the continent over to the enemy. Today we're talking about the ascension of Jesus, and I want to start with something because I think sometimes people get a wrong idea about what, what Christianity is about and what Jesus, what is the aim of, of Jesus, the aim of God. And sometimes when we get this, this idea that Jesus was taken up into heaven and now the goal is for Jesus to bring his followers up to be in heaven with him. That, that the goal is, well, he'll, he'll let the, the enemy keep this world and his goal is to save us out of the world so that we're safe in heaven but, you know, the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and then one day God will just blow it up. Like, that sometimes is how it is presented as, the, as what Christianity is. And that's what the ascension is about. What I would suggest is Jesus in the ascension is not withdrawing from the world. Instead, he is being raised up and declared the king over the world. 
the Lord of all. And his goal is not just to hand the keys of the kingdom over to the enemy, to Satan. Instead, his goal is to empower his followers to bring the kingdom of God and retake this world from the enemy. That is the plan. He's, not, he's going to bring a new kind of power into play, the power of the Holy Spirit alive in his followers, alive in his believers, and that power is going to enable the kingdom of God to, to retake, to displace God's enemy from this world. So God's not just pulling us out. He's making us more a part of it as he brings the kingdom to earth. So that's, that's the overall attitude. Let's look at the specifics. Let's, let's look at Acts chapter 1. It starts with um, Luke is writing the book of Acts, and he's, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke wrote his gospel, that's the first book, uh, the story of Jesus, ending with the ascension, and now he's going to tell what happens next. So now what happens, in other words, is what he's doing. And he's writing it to someone who's not a part of the church, Theophilus, to help explain how the story of Jesus, both first, first what the story of Jesus was, and then what things went from there. And so Acts... The, the book of Acts in the Bible continues the story from the gospel of Luke. Then to verse 3. It says, he, meaning Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering, meaning after the cross, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus had been resurrected, and for 40 days he made appearances to his followers. Sometimes, again, people have the idea they confuse the resurrection and the ascension. They think the resurrection means Jesus went up to heaven and is alive in heaven. That's not the resurrection. That is the ascension, that Jesus is, is alive in, in the throne room of heaven right now. The resurrection is Jesus physically was raised again from the dead. He had a body, and it says he offered many proofs. You know how he had to prove it? He would eat <laughs> by eating in front of them. You know, like ghosts don't eat. So when, you know, they eat fish and bread, he, he spent time with his followers. And, and Jesus, he had a different kind of body, though. He had a body that could go through walls. He had a body that would never die again. That's the kind of body we'll have when, when, when we're with him in eternity. But, um, but he chose not to show himself to the world. As I mentioned before, he, I mean, if it were me, come on, you're raised from the dead, how fun would it be to show up and talk to the, the high priest? Or Pilate, hey, hey remember me? Right? <laughs> Jesus had more restraint. So instead, he showed himself to his chosen disciples. He wanted their witness of the resurrection to be the driving force to, to the, the growth of the kingdom. Verse 4. So while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So, so G Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified. And it gets a little confusing. Because if you remember last week in Mark, it says, you will see me again in Galilee. I, I should have put a map up, but... But Jerusalem is the southern part. It's Judea and Jerusalem is in the south. 
Galilee is up in the north, and in between is Samaria. That comes into play later. So, but Galilee is up in the north. Jesus spent most of his ministry up in Galilee. So, but they would come down to Jerusalem for special feast days. And so it was one of those times during the Jerusalem where he was crucified. And so what happened is they went up to Galilee, or really down because the elevation is down, down to Galilee. And they, he made some appearances in Galilee. They came back to Jerusalem again for the Feast of Pentecost. And that's where it's saying, now don't depart again from Jerusalem. Stay there until the Holy Spirit comes. This new power that's going to enable the kingdom to grow is coming. That whole baptism thing we were doing, that was just a picture of God's plan. You're, just as you were immersed in water with baptism, now you're going to be immersed in a new kind of power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that happens in Acts chapter 2, when the, the Holy Spirit is given to the believers in Jesus. That will be the power from here on out. Um, verse 6. And so they, they, they had their one chance to ask a question. Wouldn't you have loved? Like, what question would you ask the risen Jesus? You, got, you only get to ask one. So this is their question. Uh, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, effectively, that's the question. So Jesus, what happens now? Like, tell, tell, what's going to happen next, you know? They're saying, will you at this time bring back the kingdom? You know, we were kind of waiting for you to, to uh, have an army and, like, bring the kingdom and overthrow the Romans. Is that going to happen now, you know? So their question's a little off. Note how they're focused on just to Israel versus the larger picture. So, so Jesus really offers three corrections in his answer. The, this verse that I, I love how uh, Caroline pretty much read it already because it's, it's an important passage. But in that, those, three, those two verses, you actually see three different answers that are responding to their question. So first of all, it says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So first of all, um, the Father has the schedule, right? Parents, do you ever have this? Your kids, what's, what's, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's for dinner? What's happening now, right? The Father has the schedule. He's not going to tell you everything, you know. Um, it's kind of one of those deals. So the times have been set by the Father. Just go with it, is what he's saying. Second thing he corrects them on is the power for this is not armies. It's not about political power. The power will be the Holy Spirit. You will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will bear forth this message. The message of Jesus going out into the world will bring about this change in heart that will expand the kingdom of God. And the third thing he, he clarifies, it's not just for Israel. It's going to start there. Where is it going to start? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you know, the, the capital of, of uh, Israel. It'll be in Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem. And then it's going to go to Samaria, and, and Samaria was part of the historic kingdom of Israel. Samaria was, was part of the northern kingdom of Israel in, in ancient times. It had now been lost, and they were now Jews and Samaritans didn't get along to us. The gospel's going to go there, but it's not going to stop there. It's not going to stop at the old boundaries of Israel. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. Then into verse, so he answers their, their question, 
And then, boom, that's it, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Um, I would have loved to, I just, I want to know how that worked, right? How did that actually look? Did he he just sort of zoom away, or I kind of picture a Star Trek thing, right? Like the the slowly fading, yeah, I don't know. Um, In Cambridge, Ohio, there is an outdoor drama called The Living Word. And they would always need extras. So a couple times I went out there because I, when I was living there, and I got to be an extra in the play. And but I, I always thought it was how funny how they did the the ascension scene at the end. And what they did is they had the actor playing Jesus stand on this rock, and and he would be kneeling, and then ev- all the extras would be around with their hands up, and then he would stand, and we would sort of fall, and it made it look like he was going, and then. Then they had a spotlight zoom up into the sky. And I mean, it's the best you could do in an outdoor drama. But, uh, but anyways, like, what would it have looked like? Who knows? But the, 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 uh, the disciples were dumbstruck, right? They, they were kind of like, it says they were looking up into the, the heaven, like, is he coming back? Like, what's going on? And, and the Lord has to send a couple angels to say, hey, guys, snap out of it. Come on. You know, get back to work. He, 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 when he comes back, you'll know it. Don't, you know, you, you got stuff to do. There's nothing to see here. Keep, keep moving on. And so that's how it ends in, in verse uh, 10 and 11, where the, the two angels come and, and tell them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There will come a day. The, the kingdom will be fully realized when Jesus comes back into this world. He comes back and sets things right and deals with the enemy once and for all. There will be a D-Day yet to come, and for that we still await. So the event where he's taken up to heaven is what we call the ascension. And it happened 40 days after um, Easter, or at least 40 days after Pentecost, so there are 40 days of appearances, and then there was this, this um, a, a little time left until the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come. And I want to talk about the language. It says, taken up into heaven, and they saw him going up into the sky. In the ancient world, they pictured like the earth and then they, they would look up and see the, the vast array of stars, far more stars than we see in our night sky because of all the light pollution. And, and their picture was such that that was the place of the gods. That is beyond this world. That was, of course, before we sent up satellites and, you know, and all that stuff. But they pictured the gods being up there. So they knew that he would be going up to the place of the gods, we have a little different picture because of our modern scientific view. So what, what do we think of now as the ascension? Well, it's not going up into space. Instead, it's going up in the, in the sense of his status and authority. He is exalted into the presence of God. And N.T. Wright talks about this, and he had a great explanation, a great illustration. He, he says, think of a factory where you'd have the big factory floor, and then you'd have kind of like that control booth 
that might overlook the whole factory floor. He says that's like heaven is to earth. It's not a, it's not a part of this world. It's another dimension, but, it's, but up in heaven, from, from heaven's vantage point, you can interact with every point within this, this dimension, within this world. And let me, let me give you the quote he, he says, and it's a little bit long one, so you can follow it on the screen. He writes this in, in the book Surprised by Hope. He says, basically, heaven and earth in biblical cosmology are not two different locations within the same cont- continuum of space or matter. They are two different dimensions of God's good creation. And the point about heaven is twofold. First, heaven relates to earth tangentially so that the one who is in heaven can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. The ascension therefore means that Jesus is available, accessible, um, without people having to travel to a particular spot on the earth. It is the CEO's office, the place from which instructions are given, All authority is given to me, said Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, in heaven and the earth. So that's the the idea of the ascension. I want to do two, closing up, I want to do, what does the ascension mean for Jesus? What does it mean for believers? And what does the ascension mean for the world? And each has two, two points within it. So what does the ascension mean for Jesus, that he is now ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. First, it means he's in the direct presence of God Almighty, Father and Son together. Now, the Father was always with Jesus while he was on earth through through the Spirit, but now they're they're both together in the, the heavenly throne room. In the book of Revelation, it pictures it this way. It says there's the one upon the throne, God Almighty, who who's almost beyond description. And then into the throne room comes the lion and the lamb, which is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And so together they're, they're on the ruling throne. Um, he is exalted. He's given the name above all names with God in, in the, the heavenly throne room. The second thing it means is Jesus is, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated as ruler. It's, it's as if he's been crowned the king over the entire world. Daniel 7 pictures that, and it's a great verse. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Daniel had a vision of the coming kingdom. And, and catch this, it's not on the screen, it is on your reference page. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That is the ascension. Daniel 7 is, is, the, is a great picture of it. And so now Jesus is the ruling authority. Second, then, what does it mean for believers? Well, first it means Jesus is accessible beyond what he ever could be in his time on earth. Did you notice when in Mark how often Jesus struggled to get time alone with the disciples? 
when we did those stories and how they, they would try to get away, but the demands of the crowds were so great. Because on earth, Jesus could only be with one person at a time, right? But now, in, in his location, you know, in the heavenly throne room, he could be with all his believers. He said in John 16, it is better if I go, because through the Holy Spirit, I can be with you in a way I never could before. He lives within us. In, in John 14, he makes clear, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. See, the Holy Spirit that comes to us is not some strange, weird presence. It's just, it's just Jesus, it's God living with us. I will come to you. Later, he says in John 14, 23, for those who love him, who follow him, says, the Father and I will come and make our home with you. It's an indwelling presence. That's what the ascension means we have with our Lord. The second part it means is that we are now his agents upon the earth. That we are the servants awaiting the return of the master. We are now the body of Christ serving on earth. We are his way of interacting with people. As his spirit lives in us and moves us to connect with people, we are how he does that. He has transferred us into his kingdom. And we are a part of him. And we follow his ways by keeping his word. And we represent him before, before the onlooking world that we live in. And that means there's always going to be a bit of a tension in our life. Right? We live in one world, but our, our, our core loyalty, our highest allegiance is to a king living in another world. Right? So we're always going to feel that tension. This world wants to claim us as its own, but no, we don't belong to this world. But that doesn't mean we withdraw from the world. It doesn't mean we hide out and, and go Amish and create our own little enclave of Christianity. Instead, the Lord wants us to, to engage the world we live in. It says in Jeremiah 29, uh, this is a great verse. It says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We don't give up on the world. We, we act within it to seek its welfare, to pray for it. Um, it also means we don't try to take over. We, 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 it says, be subject to the governing authorities God has given you within this world. Don't try to overthrow them. Don't try to claim political power. God's power is not through armies or political entities. Instead, it's through the Holy Spirit living in us. It's a new kind of power. That's our, our way of representing Christ within the world. Lastly, what does then the ascension mean for the world? Well, it means Jesus is the rightful ruler over all, and his kingdom is on the move. Back to Daniel. Daniel had a, a vision of a metal statue that represented the various kingdoms of the earth, the Babylonians, Persians, and all that. And in the vision, it says a rock comes from another place and destroys the statue, and then the rock comes. Be grows and becomes a mountain and, and takes over the whole world. It's an interesting picture. 
but it's saying that God's kingdom is not just another one of the kingdoms of this world, right? Instead, his kingdom grows within this world and affects more and more people. As people yield their hearts to Jesus and they allow him to rule in their lives, the kingdom is coming. As more and more people say yes and trust in him and it begins to change the world. How many things have followers of Jesus started? Soup kitchens, orphanages, crisis pregnancy center, foster care agencies, all those things we do because we love Jesus and he's put us in this world and and we're called to love and care for the people here. The second consequence for the world is, is this. It says the door to the kingdom of God is open but people enter one by one. He's given a way to salvation. He's given a path that, that anyone could go and, and turn to, to him. But you don't come in based on, on your nationality, on your kingdom. There, there, there is no Christian nation because no nation becomes a Christian. We all have to say yes one by one to Jesus. It says in Colossians 1.13, Keep flipping back to my thing. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us individually to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been transferred when we put our faith in Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. Our lives are restored. We have a peace as we navigate this world. Those are what the ascension means to the different groups. I just want to close the significance overall of the ascension and return to my primary point. Jesus has not withdrawn and abandoned this world. Instead, he is more present within the world than ever. And he's determined that his kingdom will come and his will will be done. He, he's determined to displace the enemy from the, the strongholds and the footholds it has, he has within this world. And as I think about Mark's story, the, we did the story of Jesus. What it, when I think about the significance, this is think about the story of the, the, the one who healed the leper. The ascension says that the one who has been put in charge of the universe is the same one who went up to a leper whom no one would touch and put his hands on his shoulders and healed him. That's the one. God has put in charge of our world, of this universe. And the best part of all is we know him. We know the one who's the king of all. In fact, he even calls us his friends. May that give us the courage to, to, to live for him and live as his people in this world. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, that you have exalted your son, that not only did he give his life for our salvation, not only did you raise him from the dead and, and we have this hope of eternal life, we also know, Lord Jesus, that he has now been exalted and his, his, he is overseeing and, and watching over everything that happens in this universe. Lord, we thank you that we know the one who's been put in charge of it all and we trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
We're going to head now to our communion time, and Pastor Phil will lead that in a second. But when we share together in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that his kingdom is a part of this world and that we partake in it. We, we also want to come with, with reverence. And so before we, we come and partake together, I want to give you a chance to um, pray and seek the Lord and confess any sins in your heart or anything that has come between you and God. And so we're just going to have a silent time of confession and then we're going to sing together, He is Lord. So let's come before the Lord.